Here's Simeon jolting one down the left field line, hooking into the corner, and gone! Marcus Simeon slips his 27th of the season over the wall in left. And the Blue Jays have an 8-3 lead in the ninth. They needed that one yesterday to salvage their road trip. Three and four. The Jays come back from the West Coast swing against the Angels, against the Mariners. Wasn't quite the same scene down in Seattle, Jamie, that it has been in recent years. Obviously, COVID season was completely different last year, but you know what that road trip for the Jays out on the West Coast usually means. It usually means three more home games, maybe four more home games, depending on the series for the Toronto Blue Jays, because that's how many fans flock down there to watch that series. And knock on wood, next year, I believe it's in July next year when they make the trip out, it'll it'll look like that again. But yeah, very, very different. You know, still some Jays fans, some, some Jays gear in the crowd that the camera was able to pick up. But yeah, not nearly what we're used to seeing when the Jays roll into Seattle. Certainly a disappointing road trip based on the way the Jays rolled into it. They went 9-2 and on their home stand. You look at the standings. Okay, they should be able to make a little bit of hay here. Seattle is still in the wild card picture as well. But, hey, they were on a roll. Didn't quite get it done. They're going to have to get on another one of these rolls pretty soon. I'm not saying they got to go 9 wins in 11 games, Jamie. But you look at the upcoming schedule for the Blue Jays, who are trying to track down one of those wild card spots right now. 11 of their next 15 games are against teams that, quite frankly, aren't good. Two against Washington this week. They've got six games against Detroit in their next 15. They will end that 15-game stretch with a three-game series against the Baltimore Orioles, who are also no good. The only legitimate team the Jays are going to see between now and September 1st, the Chicago White Sox. They've got a four-gamer beginning on August 23rd. And this has been a talking point for a while, right? That the Jays' schedule gets weaker in the second half of the season. But you still got to make that count, right? And, and and as we've seen now, look, the Mariners, the Angels, you put them in a different category, certainly, than a team like the Orioles or the Nationals. But you still got to convert these easy games, quote-unquote, into wins at some point. The Jays are going to have to win at a pretty significant clip down the stretch here if they want to make good on this playoff push. Well, you see how the Yankees are going. They've gotten a lot better. Who could have seen it coming? Well, probably everybody because the Yankees' yep. payroll and, and what they decided to go out and add. The Red Sox have been stumbling of, of late, but they don't have any games left against the Red Sox anymore. So you can't make up that ground head-to-head against some of the teams that you're chasing. No, and and it's not. I mean, they're still four and a half back of the Red Sox. That's a significant gap at this point in the season, right? So you're really the teams you're looking at are are the Yankees, you know, maybe the A's as well, although they're they're pretty far back from the A's now. So it's going to be it's it's an uphill battle for the Jays. And again, they really have to make this stretch against subpar competition count in a big way. Bullpen. It's still a talking point in Toronto. And, hey, to steal the line from Amy Trask last segment, when the Jays were rolling 9-2 nine, nine and two in those 11 games, that winning was the for the bullpen. Nobody was talking about it. They were just talking about the wins. That has spurred a couple of texts coming in about at least one of our listeners forgetting to put on pit stick this morning. Well, best of luck. Godspeed. Godspeed to you. Shai Davidi. MLB Insider, Jay's Insider, joins us this morning on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Shy, I hope you have used some form of antiperspirant or deodorant today. How are you? I'm, I'm okay, and uh, I believe I'm still smelling fresh and clean. Uh, it's just definitely uh, definitely part of the, my, uh, my goals every morning to make sure that uh, I'm not going to offend my fellow man. Agree with you 100%, and I'm glad that you are someone who believes in such 
personal hygiene practices. <laughs> Jay's come off this West Coast uh, string, and we talked about the disappointing record because they were rolling heading into it. These next 15 games, how crucial are they for Toronto's postseason chances? It's not just the next 15, right? they got 45 left. Every one of them counts. They don't have a lot of margin for error. And look, they're going to be, they've got a bunch of games coming up against, you know, the teams that count, right? Like not immediately because, uh, you know, they've got uh, Washington and Detroit and Chicago. You know, those aren't the teams that are directly competing against. But, you know, Oakland's on the horizon. The Yankees are on the horizon. You know, th- those are the games that are ultimately going to help determine where they get this. And, you know, the Blue Jays need to get as many W's in the bank right now as they can. Because, look, you know, again, they, they've sort of, the way I kind of describe a baseball season is like, you know what number you need to get to. And there are different paths there. They've done a lot of procrastinating, and they've got to make up for lost time at this point. So, you know, the, they've got some games. They've got a couple of games they've got to take advantage of with the Nationals. And, you know, after that, they've got, uh, you know, they've got Detroit. They've got the White Sox. And those are, you know, the White Sox series is going to be tough. But, you know, every game matters. And, you know, one against the Nationals is just as valuable as one against, you know, the Oakland or the Yankees at this point. And my co-host just made that point. Hey, these look like easier games. This looks like an easier stretch, but you've got to make that count, and they'll have to do so, or at least we would think in the short term, without George Springer, their hottest player. In your mind, is there any way he plays before the weekend? Does he play in that series against Washington? You know, uh, assuming that he makes some sort of miraculous recovery then maybe there's the potential that they do that uh, that he gets back into the lineup but i think just from a really a strategic standpoint like you're gonna you're gonna have to be sure right before you put him in there because you lose the ability to backdate in il stint if you rush him and then he does need you know a bit of an extended break and you don't want to have it too deep like right now if they put him on the IL, it would only cost him a total of seven games. You know, with 45 left, that's, you know, sacrificing seven to protect 38. You know, that that's probably the smarter course. Uh, but if you, you know, use him in Washington, then that sets the math off. And then you're costing him at least nine games in 10 days. Uh, and you've pushed it forward. So I think if, if he's 100% and he can convince the Blue Jays that he's 100%, then we see him in Washington. But if there's any little smidge of doubt, you know, he sits until Friday and they make a call then. Shy, of course, one of the big talking points of the Jays all year long has been their bullpen and how it's let them down at certain points. We saw it again in the series over the weekend with Seattle at this point. Are, this, are the bullpen's issues more about the personnel available or about how they're being deployed by the coaching staff? No, I mean, it's been personnel all along, right? Like, I, I know people like to, to you know, really dump on Charlie Montoyo for some of the decisions there. But, you know, a lot of times it's just been a function of who, who's available, right, and who he's got on the roster. And, you know, if you're looking at it right now, like, I mean, who in that bullpen do you trust? You know, like, you trust Jordan Romano. Uh, you know, Adam Simbers had some hiccups, but you're still sort of trusting him. Uh, Tim Mays is on the IL, but you trust him. And beyond that, who do you have 100% faith going to? Uh, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag. And it's been that way, you know, you change a couple names over the course of the year, but it's been that way, you know, basically from, you know, late April, early May onwards. And that that's a tough way to manage a team. And the fact that the Blue Jays are still here in spite of that, 
speaks to the talent around the rest of the roster. But, you know, the, you know, I think if the Blue Jays don't ultimately reach the postseason, you know, you'll look back and you say, like, look, this is, they, they made some gambles on the bullpen, uh, and that's ultimately what cost them. And it's because of that that they didn't get to across the finish line. What can they realistically do to improve the bullpen at this point, right? Obviously, with the trade deadline having passed, I mean, you know, is Nate Pearson a realistic option down the stretch? Are there other guys coming up that could potentially give them a boost in the bullpen? You know, it's really sort of down to, you know, Nate Pearson's the obvious guy who can come in and be a weapon. You know, he had an inning in his first rehab game back, uh, I think it was Friday or Saturday, you know, so that that's obviously a start. He's going to need a few more at least to, to before I think the Blue Jays would feel confident putting him into a leverage spot. But, you know, if he can come in and throw strikes and, you know, be throwing high 90s, maybe even touching triple digits, you know, that's a, that's a game changer for you in the bullpen. Uh, the other op, internal options they have is Thomas Hatch. But, you know, I think the Blue Jays are going to be reluctant to shorten him up until – at least until Ross Stripling is back and healthy, because then they'd have some, you know, starter insurance in case somebody went down. But, you know, I think internal options, those are the two biggest levers that you have that could really make an impact. Uh, and then, you know, it's getting Tim Meza back. And, you know, at that point, you know, if you got Simber and Meza and Romano and then, you know, Hatch and Pearson turn into something for you, then, then okay, you can, you can shorten some games. But, you know, we're, we're late in the season right now, and the Blue Jays don't have a lot of runway left, and it's pretty tough to start experimenting at this point. More than any other sport, it's about sample size. Shai Davidi joining us here, Major League Baseball and Blue Jays insider on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. And we all know Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has had an incredible season. We know what we believe Bo Bichette is long-term. Do you have any concerns whatsoever with their approaches at the plate right now and the way things are going? Zero. I mean, you know, these are two guys who are playing 162 for the first time in their careers. You know, we forget how young they are, 22, 23. I mean, to, to think that they're going to go wire to wire without any hiccups, uh, you know, is, is just unrealistic. Uh, and then further to that, you know, Bo has been, you know, beat up a little bit physically. Uh, he just take, take the foul balls off the shins and during the last homestand in Toronto you know, he dove for a ball. It looked like he was shaking his wrist a little bit through that, too. Uh, you know, he, he's been through a lot physically. Same with, with Vladdy. You know, he's been determined to play in every game. They had to, like, basically tie him to the bench to say, okay, you have to take a day off and give yourself a break. I, I don't think there's any reason for concern with either one of those guys. You know, the, the they are both have had tremendous seasons. They're both tremendous talents. And, you know, the fact that they're just, you know, having little dips within what has been a remarkable season for both of them, you know, just shows that they're human beings acclimating to the big leagues. Well, if I'm not mistaken, they're just coming off the Jays, a stretch of 25 games in 24 days. And your point about 162 is very well made. There's a stamina element involved here as well. I know that because of moving home locations, that story has had some traction, but have we have we too easily forgotten the potential impact of playing home games in four different stadiums this year and the impact it may have on this ball club down the stretch? I mean, that's part of it. You know, the other thing to keep in mind, too, and this has been lost a little bit as the season has gone on, that everybody's jumping from a 60-game season last year to 162. You know, essentially, you're going from, 
you know, running the, the 5,000 meters to, to running marathons, right? That's the sort of difference. And everybody sort of trained and physically, uh, physically building off what was the 5,000 meter. Uh, and now all of a sudden, like, okay, you got to get through this marathon kids. Like this is, this is where, what it is. So, you know, I think that's, that's an element that we might be forgetting too. And, you know, there was a lot of concern before the season, like, how are you going to get pitchers through this? right? Like, are you going to be able to get pitchers wire to wire? And we saw a lot of pitching injuries, particularly early in the season. Uh, and, you know, I, I do think that there's a concern for, for what guy, how fresh guys are going to be once, you know, you get to into September and towards October too. So that's all a part of this. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the, I guess, unique elements and circumstances to this season coming off the pandemic shortened year. Shy, one of the the talking points kind of before the trade deadline was, yes, the front office had a responsibility to to help this group out and make a push for the playoffs, but there was also the sense that, you know what, this team is still so young, there's still so much in the prospect pipeline that next year, the year after that, might be realistic, more realistic targets to, to be a true contender. You know, I also look at it, though, the flip side is you have Marcus Simeon, who's playing incredibly well, and Robbie Ray, who's been really the ace of the staff, both as free agents. And if they both leave, I mean, would you still say that next year should be a more competitive year for the Blue Jays? Yeah, I mean, look, they can continue to add longer-term pieces or medium-to-longer-term pieces, too, right? And that, you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. isn't done maturing. Bo Bichette isn't done maturing, you know, uh, Kevin Biggio, Alejandro Kirk, Danny Jansen. Like, th- this team isn't a finished product by any stretch. Nate Pearson, Thomas Hatch. Uh, you know, that, that's, you're going to still be, or you should at least expect some internal growth. And look, you know, the, there's nothing saying that you can't resign, you know, a couple of those guys. Uh, and obviously, you know, Marcus Simeon and Robbie Ray have both really upped their values with what have been really strong seasons on, on both fronts. Uh, but, you know, you know, the, they're going to need homes and the Blue Jays are a team that's going to be building, uh, presumably building financially. They should be able to accommodate one or both players. And if they wanted to, I think they're going to get, they're going to ha- they should have some options going into the market. So, you know, I, I do think that it's, you know, to a degree a bit unique that you've got so many players in the midst of what have been all-star, if not career seasons, but you know, I don't think that that necessarily ends or that you can't replace some of that production via the market, either through trade or free agency. And, and you know, Shai, I really agree with what you said earlier about how Charlie Montoyo, I think, has been subject to a lot of unfair criticism when it comes to the bullpen usage, right? Given what he's been, what he's had to deal with and work with uh, coming out of the pen, your sense of it from the front office perspective, do they still see Charlie Montoyo as the right guy for the job long-term with this team? You know, I, I don't, I don't have any indication that they think that there's anything there that somebody else could have done, come in and done something differently. Right. Like, you know, it's not like the bullpen, it, you know, they weren't motivated properly by Charlie or the players haven't been motivated. Right. And when you think about sort of all the different elements, this team has been through, but, you know, you mentioned all the moves and the upheaval, the uncertainty, managing that and their families and all, all the things inherent and tied to that. You know, that's not an easy situation. And, and you know, Charlie Montoya has been steady throughout that. And, you know, if you're going to 
how many guys are going to make a, a, a difference? I think if you're looking at the managerial standpoint, like, you know, is there something, could somebody else have gotten more out of this group? And, you know, I don't think that you can make a case that anybody else would have done anything different. Like, you know, if you think uh, Kevin Cash is the best manager or Aaron Boone or, you know, Joe Madden or whoever you think is the best manager in the game right now, you know, nobody's going to, nobody could have taken Anthony Castro and Joel Piamps in leverage and done more with that. You know what I mean? Like that, those were your options. I think people are going to look at that and say, okay, you know, we need to change. This team isn't this or whatever, but you give this team a proper bullpen and you can make the case that they're the best club or maybe second best to Houston in the American league right now. So, you know, I, to, to pin any of this on Charlie, I think would be unfair and, and, and scapegoating him needlessly uh, and, and sort of looking for change in the wrong place. Because of his position, he can't be out there every single day, and he is a rookie, but how important do you believe Alec Manoa is to the Jays' playoff chances? Yeah, it's really interesting because uh, I was having a conversation with somebody and we were saying, like, you, you know, who would you start in a one-game playoff? And you know, so there are people who think that you should start Alec Manoa, but to me, he's really interesting. Like, you know, he could end up being a, a really unique bullpen piece, depending how the Blue Jays set things up for themselves in the playoff series. You know, if you decided to go with maybe a three-man rotation of, you know, Ray Barrios and Ryu, and then maybe put Manoa in your bullpen so that you have some depth behind uh, behind Romano and Meza. Uh, I, I think he's fascinating, but look, they need him to be good because he's essentially their number four. And you can argue that at times he's pitched better than that. And they need him to keep on sucking up those innings and, and, and giving his team a chance to win in all those games. And, and it's a lot to put on him. You know, I, a lot of people would have thought before the season that the trajectory for him was to maybe join the team in mid season as a reliever uh, because, you know, Nate Pearson would be doing what he's doing. Uh, but it's really been the inverse and his contributions have been massive. Uh, because he's given that rotation a bit of upside that it wasn't certain to get. I know this isn't the 2015 roster. It's much younger. We feel like this is the opening of a window. There are far less accomplished players, certainly over their career on this roster, than the one that was featured by the end of the 2015 season. But the thing I keep coming back to where I like to compare is that 2015, there was this it factor. You know exactly what I'm talking about, that this team has it. I feel a bit of that with these Jays. Do you see it as well? I guess we lost Shai Davidi. Maybe he didn't like the question. Maybe he had to reapply deodorant. <laughs> I'm not sure. Jamie, you're a Jays fan. You know what I'm talking about, though? There's a bit of an it factor with this team, and I don't have the same expectations of this roster, but I've said from day one, this team's good enough to be in the playoffs, and that's the standard I'm going to hold it to. For me, it will be a disappointment. With the talent they have, the run differential they have, the way they can put up runs, if this team doesn't quali qualify for the postseason, I'm going to label this a disappointment. Oh, there's no doubt that it'll be a disappointment. And that's what made this road trip specifically so disappointing is you you saw them get on the run, right? And you thought, okay, here it's here it is. This is this is what we've been waiting for all seasons for all of the talent to click at the same time and for this team to get really really hot and then they couldn't live up to that promise on the road trip and it seems like this is an incredibly talented team 
that just can't quite get out of its own way, right? And whether it's the bullpen, whether it's, you know, bad fielding plays at, at, at the wrong time, base running mistakes, whatever it is, you can point to their record in one-run games and say, okay, that's bad luck, but it also feels like they're contributing to that record, right? That they have not done enough to close out those close games. And I totally agree with you. The talent is there. I still believe that they can get very hot down the stretch and make a run to the playoffs, but for whatever reason, they just haven't been able to get out of their own way all season. And you're right. You look at the run differential. You look at the talent. It will absolutely be a disappointment if they're not able to sneak into the postseason this year. And look, there are some excuses that people take. It's not throw the baby out with the bathwater if they don't get there. If they don't get there, it's not, well, I can't believe they screwed this up because there is so much more to come with this young group. However, I don't think those should be used as apologies. Well, they're in a tough division. Yeah, Springer wasn't healthy all year. Their bullpen had some injuries and got decimated early on in the season. Those might be facts. They're not enough for me, given the talent that exists on this roster, to lower the standard for what I expect. No, the expectation should still be playoffs, right? And we're not talking, you know, chase down the Rays to win the division or anything, right? We're looking at the wild card. I think that's a fair expectation. But your other point is important as well, right? If they do fall short, it's not as if you should be giving up on the core of talent that the Blue Jays have built, right? Or you say, oh, man, this organization needs massive changes from top to bottom to get to where they want to go. It'll be a disappointment, but it's it's an, a surmountable disappointment going into the future. It's Rintoul and Dodd. Jamie is in for Karen Sermon today, who is on vacation. Back-to-back guests. We finally have an open segment because we haven't touched on something that was extremely unique over the weekend. I know I was tuned in. How about you? We'll get to it next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. You get asked every once in a while, and usually you don't have to think too much about it, and I always answer no. But maybe I'm going to have to change my answer. That's very cryptic, I know. It's Scott Rintoul, it's Jamie Dodd, who is in for a vacationing Karen Sermon. Every once in a while, Jamie, you get asked by someone at a restaurant or a doctor, pharmacist, do you have any allergies? Jamie, do you have any allergies? Yeah, my answer is always not that I know of. Who knows? But I've never encountered them. All right. So here's where I'm going with this. Have you ever had any run-ins with insects, anything bad? No, nothing, nothing to write home about. You know, the same normal things that everyone has, but no, uh, no, no catastrophic uh, encounters with insects. Got into it with a bit of Mother Nature in the late stages of Saturday. All right. And it's not gone particularly well for me, but I'm playing through it here today. Now, I've just tweeted out a photo of this. But late Saturday night, I went out there and... You know how dry things have been. And as you know, I took the Volvo all across the province of BC. I haven't been in my home that much over the last three weeks. So I needed to get a little bit of water on the plants, a little water on the garden. So I went out there fairly late at night, just sprinkling a little water on the plants. You know, it doesn't evaporate overnight. It really soaks in. You got to do the gardening properly. There's a wasp nest in my garden right now. And me being stupid late on Saturday night, I don't know why it was annoying me. I know it's there. I just decided after I was done watering the, the plants, Jamie, I'm going to turn this sucker on full blast. I'm going to give this wasp nets a little bit of what's what. So I did, and I was feeling pretty good about it at the time until I got stung, which it's a wasp thing. No big deal, right? Yeah. 
one of my hands looks like Professor Klump, and the other looks like Eddie Murphy in the Nutty, Nutty Professor when he, you know, takes the serum and turns into yeah, yeah, slims down. Yeah. So that I have Nutty Professor hand right now, man, and it's swollen up pretty good, and so I may be allergic to wasp venom. I'm not sure. But it's not deflating the way I thought it was going to deflate. I've been living with this for a day and a half now. It's not great. If you see the tweet, at Scott Rintoul, it's not hard to tell which of these hands has been affected by a wasp sting. Yeah, I um, I, I just hopped over to your Twitter feed and took a look, and it is – it's something else, man. I got to say, it looks one, – the one hand looks like it's a cartoon or something almost. Like, it is, it is puffy. It looks like maybe – you know, some air has been uh, inflated into that hand or something. But, yeah, that is dramatic. I have never had anything like that. Yeah, and you know what I'm talking about. If you've seen Nutty Professor or if you're a fan of yep. Austin Powers and Mike Myers gets into the suit to become the character Fat Bastard, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. Like, that's what it feels like I'm wearing on my right hand right now, and then the rest of my body is completely unaffected. I don't think it's a great situation for me. No, it doesn't sound ideal. I mean, I guess that that's a lesson to all of us. You know, don't don't uh, tangle with a wasp's nest, right? Maybe just give it a little, a, some safe, respectful distance. I don't know what the proper way to dispose of one is, but that's certainly a cautionary tale that I will take to heart. Well, I've dealt with them in the past. Probably a lot of people out there have, and you can go get that remedy from whatever local hardware store you can you spray at night you spray the wasp nest and basically it seals them inside and they're done that's it thank you for coming we're all done here the problem with this one is it's kind of buried under a fern so you can't get a great shot at this i had a worse run into this just a few years ago jamie and it was unbeknownst to me that there was like a black wasp nest in one of my plants and there i am middle of the day in summer i go out and i'm, I'm just trimming some plants, you know, using the hedge trimmer, whatever you're using. And all of a sudden, I just go to cut one little part of a vine off. And I get attacked in the face by this nest. And my face swole up like the nutty professors. Like, I had jowls going on. Like, I took a picture. I don't have that one at the ready because it was on an old phone. But I took, like, I honestly looked like one of those characters wearing a suit like that. I had to go to the hospital, get the IV pump. Like, my entire face and neck swole up. It was not great. No, that's ideal. See, I am, uh, yeah, I, I have been fortunate to avoid anything like this. I, you know, I, I, I give them their distance. They ask that they keep their distance from me in return. So far, at least, it's been working. Scotty, I got to ask, was it a murder hornet? Like, I do that not hand believe. Incredible. <laughs> I do not believe it was a murder hornet. I, I hope not, because I won't be doing the show tomorrow if that's the case. Because the name murder implies that I'm not going to live it's through this, and I'm, I'm hoping that isn't the eventual outcome of this, Greg. I don't know exactly which one got me. Maybe maybe it was the queen, Jamie. Maybe that's who got me. I do appreciate Balak uh, bringing up the possibility of your impending death, though. <laughs> On the show, just jumping in to say, hey, is it possible this was a lethal situation? That's a good contribution right there. I was stung 10 times after hitting a wasp nest while working, not allergic, but had a swollen head and arm for four days. It sucked, says one of our texters. Many people telling me, go get an exterminator. That sounds like a great idea. It falls into the advice I could have used yesterday category <laughs> for me. I'm getting advice to get some allergy meds. I've been on Benadryl since yesterday. Like I went and, I went and got those, and so hopefully this stuff goes away. Chris from Surrey, believe me, I thought about this, but given the state of fire in this province yeah. and across western Canada. i'm not going to incinerate the nest i'm not lighting fire to anything thank you very much 
Well, and I like this one from Marcus and Gibsons, who says, was it a regular wasp nest or was it a ground nest? Ground nests are the worst by far. And you said it was kind of buried. Under it's a, a ground phone, nest. Right? Oh, this so is a ground, a ground nest, Marcus. Nest. So, yeah. so again, information that might have been useful on Saturday. I've never heard that before. Uh, Marcus, I would love for you to text in with some elaboration on that about what exactly it is that makes ground nests uh, so much worse. But there you go. That's another part of the problem here, Scotty. Jimmy and Abby, I was doing tree removal last week, came across a nest about 60 feet up. Yep, I got nailed, cut the limb, and let the ground crew have some fun. That is from Jimmy in Abby. There you go. People have had this experience. Adam wants to know how I took a picture of my hands. I had someone else operate the camera. Yeah. <laughs> That's there was how. assistance there. Yeah, I most certainly had that. That hadn't happened to me in quite some time. In fact, the ground nest sting had never happened to me before that. If you have a story, you can text us at 960-960 or 650-650. You know what I hadn't seen in a really long time? A PGA playoff involving six players. Did you catch that yesterday? I didn't watch much of the Wyndham championship, but when I saw that Roger Sloan was going to be in this six-man playoff, I caught myself tuning in. It was pretty compelling. Yeah, it was very compelling. Uh, just the the novelty of a six-man playoff to end an event. I ended up catching the replay a little bit later on, but that was pretty cool. It was a pretty fun way to see it end. It was, and it had to do with the uniqueness. I don't need to see it every single week, and you no. could tell Jim Nance, who was commentating the event, like he, he sort of made fun of it. He's like, I can't remember whose turn it is to go and how many players have played yet and who's putted. Adam Scott blew it. Like, Adam Scott should have won on the first playoff hole, and he didn't. And Roger Sloan narrowly missed his putt after a great approach. But they played 18 back-to-back, and eventually Kevin Kisner won. I wish that it would have had the field narrowed down. Like, I wish there would have been two players who made birdie or three players who made birdie on the same hole. And then part of the field was eliminated. Now we're on to the next stage. We didn't get that, but we did see all six players go back up the 18th fairway, go play the hole again and see if they could do it any differently the next time around. And Kisner was the only one who did. And the other part that was fascinating, Jamie, is it's such a weird game because you can hit a great tee shot, great approach, and just miss your makeable putt, and all of a sudden you get a four. Or you can shank a couple of them like some of the players did on their approach, and you can still wind up making a four that way because every single player oh, got yeah. the four the exact in, in like so many different ways on that playoff hole. Yeah, there's a lot of different routes to par, that's for sure. I mean, especially with how guys can get up and down from trouble or get out of trouble these days, right? Your your par is not out of reach just because you hit a bad tee shot or you hit a bad second shot. Or even if you hit both of your first two shots bad, you can still often find a way to scramble and save par. But I agree with you. The, it would have been fantastic if it, if it had ended up being, you know, one by one kind of single elimination, right? If they had whittled it down from six to five to four to three to two. It would have been a lengthy process, but it would have been very entertaining to see that. That happened. Yeah, it would have been. And is it akin to a shootout? Not quite, because you're still playing the same game. Yep. And and people look at the the shootout as, as simply a skills competition as opposed to actual hockey. I don't know if there's a parallel we can really draw to another sport, like home run derby. But that again is a made for TV event and just part of the All Star festivities. And you're eliminating one by one and going through that way. I don't know that you can apply something like this to another sport, but it was fun to watch. 
No, it, there really isn't anything else that it applies to, right? Where you could see the field kind of change so dramatically for the the tie breaking uh, part of the sport. But it is always interesting because I mean, leagues are constantly tinkering with their tie-breaking format, right? I mean, we've seen it in baseball now, adding the runner on second, going into extra innings. The NFL is always tinkering with, okay, how do we make it more fair when we get into overtime? And it, it's something that's very – it seems like it's very hard to find – I mean, in golf, it's golf, right? You win the playoff. No one's arguing that. You win. You, there's That's clearly legitimate. That's clearly the simplest way to do it. But in so many team sports – it seems like it's really hard to find a way that is both practical but leaves everyone satisfied at the end of it as well. Yeah, and I do wonder if somebody watched this, and we've seen this a couple times in recent weeks. One was on the PGA Tour, but the other was at the Olympics. I don't know how much the Olympic golf you caught, but there was a seven-man playoff for the bronze medal because they were all tied with the same score, so they had to have seven, and it wasn't quite the same, but there's a parallel to be drawn. I wonder if somebody looks at the uniqueness and creates an event where you start with, I don't know how many golfers, Jamie, but hole by hole, you just eliminate yeah. them until there's one person left standing. Like, you start with, I don't know, 30 players, and maybe they can't play the hole at the same time, but the first group plays, and if somebody doesn't make the lowest score, well, sorry, you guys are gone. Then the next group has to try to hit that same score. I wonder if somebody will it, – it's not quite match play, but it, it has an element of that. Well, and again, I mean, golf is a sport, you know, just like other sports, constantly looking for those kind of made-for-TV events and, and one-offs and novelties, and that that could fit this the fit the bill, right? Just seeing, and again, you wouldn't have, you know, 30 guys playing the same hole at the same time, but you could have bigger groups. You know, you could go in cohorts of, of six or eight or something if it was just for one hole. I agree. I would tune in that for sure. The elimination, the eliminator, right? It would be great to see. If you finally get down to the final two or three, the drama of it would be really cool. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of, like, heats to it, isn't there? Like, yeah. in, in the Olympic sprinting. Okay, well, you guys were good enough to make the cut. The rest of you, thank you very, very much for coming. We're going to go on to the next round. So there's there's a little bit of that as well. You know what the unique aspect of golf is, though, Jamie? If you play it really well, you don't get to play as much. So you saw Adam Scott had played that first playoff hole extremely well yesterday. He had to wait for everybody else. He was so close yeah. to the hole that everybody else had to take their shots, take their putts, and now he goes a really long time between playing, and that's something that's also unique. Like, I'm sure Adam Scott's feeling it. He would have loved to get up there and, and be the first to try to make that putt and just say thanks for coming, guys, or put even more pressure on Roger Sloan. But the uniqueness of the sport is that you have to wait if you're playing the game particularly well. Well, and even just you think about you know, standing on the tee, waiting for your turn. And seven, if you're last, seven other guys have to hit before you. And that's so different to anything you're used to on tour, right? And then, you know, let's say even you all put it on the fairway, right? If you're the if you're the farthest up, you have to wait for seven guys to hit your approach shot. You're just kind of standing there biding your time. That would be a major adjustment. And as you mentioned, it, it didn't work out uh, for Adam Scott, really. Who knows if that was the cause? But yeah, it is. It's just slightly different enough from what we normally see in golf that it adds an extra wrinkle to things. I wish Roger Sloan would have been able to win. Boy, he had a great approach shot on the first playoff hole, and then Adam Scott won up to him, and, and Sloan just slid it by Merritt BC. It was a really, really good day for Canadians. By the way, three of them in the top ten. Sloan was in the playoff, but Adam Hadwin and Nick Taylor also finished top ten in the window. In, uh, the Wyndham. Someone, a couple people have now texted and saying it's called a horse race 
in golf, and someone else texted in saying it's done at many golf clubs after men's night. Guys are tipsy, and they want to try to recoup some of their losses from the actual men's night, and they get out there, and they play the horse race. I've never been a part of one. Maybe we'll start something here, Jamie. Maybe we'll have yeah, our own event. Go. Well, I mean, of course it already exists, and of course it exists as a, you know, post-drinks, I need to earn my money back gambit. <laughs> that fits very, very well with what we're discussing here. All right, we tell you we'll build in these texts when you get them in and they're relevant, and we can work them in the show. So we're getting some pretty good stories here about wasp nests and stings, and I'm getting more advice that I better go see a doctor because Benadryl may not be enough. I might need some antibiotics, but we'll see about that after the show is done. This one comes in. Stay with me here. I built fences in university. My boss was a best friend's dad, knew him very well. We're tearing down an old fence. We found a nest. I got stung a couple of times. I called the boss, told him we need to get rid of it. He told us to get poison to get rid of it. We told him no way. He called us wussies. Showed up an hour later, sprayed the nest, and as he turned to run away, the yard we were leaving had a very deep pond. He went underwater and then got stung multiple times trying to get out of the pond. Needless to say, his son and I laughed for a solid 30 minutes. It took him a day or two to see the humor in it. <laughs> yeah, at least at least a day or two to see the humor in that situation. That is very uncomfortable. Uh, on a similar line here, this is from Calgary, 960, 960, unsigned. I used to do lawn maintenance, and my partner was trimming around a tree with his head down, walked face first into a nest. His head got swarmed. I couldn't help but laugh. It was so cartoonish watching him run around in circles being swarmed by wasps. Yeah, the guy, the people watching, it's always funny. The people it's happening to, well, maybe not so much. Maybe well, not quite as comical for them. Yeah, and I've said this to my wife because when this happened to me where I got stung in the face and it swole up and I had to go to the hospital and get an IV – uh, a few years ago, Jamie, I said this to my wife afterwards when it all turned out fine. Like, I wish she would have seen it. She was in the house at the time, but nobody actually yeah. witnessed it. And you know when you see a comedy and you see the person in the comedy in a movie, they backpedal and stumble all over the place and fall on the ground and, yeah. and don't know what to do. And That's what I felt like was happening. That's how I tried to get away at the time and then run into the house. Like, I felt like I was in one of those comedy movies. It didn't turn out so funny. But just like the last text, or just like the texter a couple of times ago said, we laugh for a solid 30 minutes. Once my wife got me the medication and the doctor said, ah, it's going to be okay after I got to the hospital, then she had a pretty good chuckle. Then yeah. she laughed pretty hard. Up until then, she contained her laughter. But, yeah, she laughed pretty hard. I also enjoy uh, this text uh, from the Calgary Inbox, 960-960. They say, we had a ground nest just behind our backyard. It was the worst until a skunk came and dug it up and took away the nest. Then they were gone. So th that's a high-risk, high-reward gambit right there. Right? Yeah. You, could, you could import a skunk to try to remove the wasp's nest, but then you're running a whole different kind of risk. But who knew that skunks could actually help you out and, and dig up a wasp's nest for you? Yeah, how are you going to cut the deal with the skunk? Look. Here's what I need you to do, but I can't have you doing that other thing. One major condition. One yeah. major condition here, yeah. Scott and Cloverdale texts in, I was told when it gets hot and dry, wasps like to make a hive in the ground. Yeah, this is the case in my place, Scott. One day I was out mowing the lawn, accidentally mowed over the nest. Needless, says Scott and Cloverdale, needless to say, I got hit over and over again. My neighbor thought I must have mowed over my foot as I was doing the pain dance, <laughs> as I was stung on my ankles and my back. Wasps flew into my pocket, said Scott and Cloverdale, and stung me close to the nether region when it was all said and done. 17 stings he took. Oh, 
Oh no, that's bad. That is the, the image of the neighbor watching. That guy just mowed his foot off. I think he's in so much pain. That is very funny. Man, someone else texting in saying, you've got to smoke them out. I'll start rolling. Hey, it's legal. Why not? Why not? Maybe that's the way we should go. Keep those texts coming in. 960, 960, 650, 650. As we turn to the last hour of our two markets together, Jamie, and we'll get you to your respective local markets in just a few minutes' time, I did want to revisit the conversation we are having off the top of the show. And if you missed it, it looks like UBC grad and now Calgary Stampeder quarterback Michael O'Connor is in line to get the start for the Calgary Stampeders this Friday. Stamps off to an 0-2 start. The Lions gave them their second of those losses last week. Bo Levi Mitchell didn't look right, and apparently he doesn't feel right. While the Stampeders are saying that they are still evaluating his, his condition, there are CFL outs, insiders, I should say, out there, like Farhan Lalji, saying he's going to miss some time. Michael O'Connor is going to be starting for the Calgary Stampeders this Friday against Montreal. It's a really unique opportunity. Nathan Rourke got thrust into action just before the game, and there's been a lot of talk about whether the Lions were being deceptive with their quarterback plans their first two weeks of the season. I tend to not be so cynical. I think it's all depending on whether Michael Michael Riley feels like he can go right before the game. I buy what he is selling in that front. But if we've got some lead up to this, it's going to be a big story in the Canadian Football League and across this country this week. Yeah, it is going to be a big story. And, and there's been some quotes coming out of Stan Peters' practice here from Dave Dickinson. You know, he's trying to be a little more non-committal than some of the reports from guys like Farhan Lalji have been, but certainly the expectation is that O'Connor will get the start against Montreal this week. And the comparison between Nathan Rourke that you make, it's a good one because now this is a player who one has been around the league for a little bit, but also will have the chance you would think to get first team reps in practice, right? To have the coaching staff develop a game plan specifically tailored to him. And that should give him, you know, a, a very good opportunity to go out there and have a decent performance against Montreal. And it's also just fascinating from a Stampeders perspective overall, because this is a team that's 0-2. And, and as we talked about with Donovan Bennett earlier in the show, you know, Calgary is not used to going 0-2. It's been a long time since that happened in a shortened season. Yeah, you want, you know, okay, you don't want to put too many expectations on the shoulders of a guy like Michael O'Connor who'll be making his first CFL start, but you also desperately need a win, right? So if he goes in there, you got to think they're they're going to take the, the handcuffs off and open up the playbook and do whatever they have to do to generate some offense and try to win that game. It's a really interesting dynamic. And if you're like me and you've wanted to see a Canadian quarterback get significant playing time, whether it's in this league or the National Football League for quite some time, you feel you feel like you're pulling for this kid. And here's the other part of it, and it was pointed out by Donovan Bennett, and Jamie, you and I have made mention of this as well. He's in a good situation. Bo Levi Mitchell has been pretty healthy for most of his career, but when other players have had to go in and play in Calgary – They've had success because of the insulation of the coaching staff and the program they have in place in Calgary, whether it's Nick Arbuckle, whether it's Andrew Buckley, who had some success, albeit in a you know less less capacity than Nick Arbuckle. Like, there is a template there that you can come out and not you're going to rip the job away from Bo Levi Mitchell tomorrow, but you can come out and you can have success with this team. Yeah, they can win with other guys under center taking snaps, right? Because of what you said and what Donovan Bennett was alluding to as well. The the institutional knowledge, right? And the institutional competency that they have there 
in Calgary. You know, you're stepping in with Dave Dickinson as your head coach. That makes a big difference. There's still a lot of talent on that roster. You've been able to learn from Bo Levi Mitchell overall. And again, I don't think anyone's expecting this to turn into, you know, a quarterback controversy when Bo Levi Mitchell is healthy because he's still the guy for that team. But it just, you add up a lot of factors, and I think expectations are going to be fairly high for O'Connor this week, given the number of things in his favor going into his first start. No question. And when you are in that spotlight, how do you handle it? Because when O'Connor yeah. got some playing time when he was at the Toronto Argonauts, it was late in the season. Argos were well done. This is very early in the season. This is a team that needs a win right now. If he, in fact, ends up being the starter this Friday, as has been suggested, how do you deal with the pressure of that? Because you've got a lot of weight on your shoulders, not just from your football team, but for people like us who are saying, hey, let's see what a Canadian can do. You're, you're carrying the flag to a certain extent here. Well, and of course, as you know, I mean, yeah, it's Toronto. It's the Argonauts. Okay, it's Canada's biggest city, but it's also probably one that gets the least amount of attention when it comes to its CFL team, right? So even though you're playing in this massive market, your your team is not in the spotlight. The Calgary Stampeders are in the spotlight, right? They they are that that market is is crazy about the CFL. It gets a lot of hype. It gets a lot of scrutiny. That's an cont- entirely different element that'll have to contend with this time as well. And I imagine part of the discussion coming up this afternoon on the big show as we part ways with both markets at this point of the program today. We'll turn you over to local programming in Calgary. Now, we will roll on. Canucks got a significant contract done over the weekend, but not one of the two people are waiting on. Harm Dial joins us next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul. And Sermon on Sportsnet 650. (laughs) No, it wasn't my bottom. No, it's not that the pants are fitting a little tighter today or shorts. It's Scott Rental and it's Jamie Dye. I got a wasp sting. If you follow me on social media, or if you don't, you can head there on Twitter right now, at Scott Rental, and check it out. I tweeted out the picture of my two hands just to give you an idea of how swollen my right hand is and we've had a lot of people who've had similar stories over the course of their lives texting us in and interestingly scotty you know i'm noticing a lot of these stories involve guys getting into trouble with wasps nests i wonder what that is why why that is not a lot not hearing a lot on the other side of, of things there Perfect homer drop, says one of our texters. You can find us 650-650 anytime throughout the course of the program. It's Scott Rental and Jamie Dodd. Final hour of the program coming this way. This one comes in. When I was a kid, me and my friends found a wasp nest in a big stump. We used to throw rocks at it, but we never really hit it. One day, I lobbed a big rock at it, and I'm pretty sure I crushed it. It felt like the entire nest was chasing me. I couldn't outrun them. I got stung in my throat. Another wasp nest story, says Chef Swagger from Hell's Kitchen. When I was a kid, I was playing on a park, and there was a nest on the underside of a wooden bridge. I disrupted the nest by playing on the bridge. When I looked down, my foot was covered in wasps. Oh, oh, oh no. I, I ended up getting stung by the few that got caught in my sandals as I tried to run away. I think this was only one sting. Like, only felt one st- sting, which is why I'm surprised by the yeah. reaction that my body has had here, Jamie. I, I got to say, we're getting a ton of stories in, and there's there's basically two types. One is... 
I, I thought it would be funny to disrupt this wasp nest for some reason. And I was not expecting what happened. And in those ones, you know, I don't want to say karma, but okay. I mean, like, you know, you you, you, you play with a wasp nest. There's a chance you're going to get stung. But then there's the other side of it, which was I was just completely minding my own business. I was walking across this wooden bridge. And then all of a sudden, my feet are covered in wasps getting stung. I feel a lot of sympathy for those people just minding their own business. And then all of a sudden, you're tangling with a swarm of wasps. Capitol Hill Ron sends this one in. My wasp story, says Capitol Hill Ron. A few years ago, I went to a music festival where I was camping. We got there last minute, but amazingly, we found a great spot. It was later at night, so we set up our tent in the dark. After the concert, we came back to our campsite, crashed for the night. Next, we woke up and unzipped the tent door, only to find a wasp nest right outside the door. Next morning, I guess this is. The people around us must have had a good laugh as we tried running like hell to outrun the <laughs> nest. That only was left us with another problem. How do we take the tent down? Yeah. <laughs> it belongs to the wasps now. That's <laughs> theirs. Sorry. If you've got a wasp story or a sting story you would like to share, you can text us at 650-650 throughout the course of the program. Over the weekend, a lot of stuff was happening, not much in the NHL, but one of the things that did happen in the National Hockey League and was pretty applicable to this market Contract signing. Jason Dickinson gets a three-year deal. Jamie, we haven't reacted much to it. We're going to talk to Harmon Dial about it a little bit next. When that number came in for Jason Dickinson, what was your first reaction? Yeah, my first reaction was at three years, it was maybe slightly less than I was anticipating. You know, I thought it might be somewhere in like like 2.9, right? So not massive savings, but a little less than I had penciled in for Dickinson when I'm doing my, you know, kind of back of the envelope cap calculations for the Canucks. And again, it's not it's not a terribly surprising number, but it comes in just a little bit on the cheaper side, I would expect. So I think it's a good deal for the Canucks. I mean, obviously, Jason Dickinson was happy to avoid arbitration. You know, I saw his agent came out and said, look, we didn't we, we just joined the Canucks organization. We didn't really want the first interaction between the two sides to be an arbitration hearing. We know how messy and how, you know, awkward those can be so it's not a big surprise but i think it's a nice piece of business for the canucks every fan of every team is always going to want to see said player get a cheaper deal save the team some some cap space and i'm not sure if this qualifies or not but it has the most important element of a contract in the national hockey league you've heard me say this before jamie portability you can yeah. sign someone to whatever you want i don't care what the number is i don't care what the term is as long as it's portable. And if you go too far on either, perhaps it's not portable. And by that, I mean, can you move it? If you need to move it, can you do that? This contract is portable, Jamie. And that is the most yeah. essential element of this signing. Yeah, exactly. You have still, Jason Dickinson still has value on the trade market. If you ever decide to go that route, his contract is not killing your ability to potentially move on from him in the future. Harmon Dial of The Athletic joining us now to talk about that signing and the ones we are still waiting on in Vancouver. Harm, hope you had a great weekend. How are you today? I did have a great weekend. I'm doing well. How about you guys? Hey, we're doing okay. Wasps sting aside, I'm doing all right. So we will talk about the Canucks instead of that, although our texters continue to pour in their personal stories about getting stung at some point. Unless you have one, Harm. I don't know if you have a bad bee or wasp sting or insect run-in over the course of your life. Fortunately, I have not had one of those uh, unfortunate uh, run-ins. Well, my best advice is to avoid them. Uh, I know that's <laughs> really 
groundbreaking news. A little bit of news over the weekend involving the Canucks. We were just talking about the Jason Dickinson contract, and I know one of the things that has been done at The Athletic in the last couple of these days was contract efficiency. How does this one rate as far as efficiency goes for Jim Benning? It's, I think, pretty strong for sure. When you look at uh, Jason Dickinson, obviously the point totals don't jump off the page, but he's never been that kind of offensive guy. And um, the, I think one of the primary drivers in a negotiation like this for Dickinson, despite the lack of point totals, would have been the amount of ice time uh, he's had, where um, among stars forwards, um, he's been among kind of like the top nine um, minute uh, minute eaters at even strength, and he kills penalties. And so that definitely drives value in negotiations. And so to me, on a three-year term where you're buying out two years of unrestricted free agency, I would have thought that the number would have been closer to 2.8, 2.9. Uh, and so for the Canucks to get him at uh, just over 2.6, um, I think that's uh, I think that's good for them. And, and the other key, I think the reason why they really wanted to lock in term here was I think there's clearly a an idea that Dickinson could be used in multiple roles and in, in, in multiple opportunities. And, and while they recognize the already established defensive component of this game, I think they feel that there could be some offensive upside. And, and um, when you, for instance, talk to Jim Benning, each time he'll reference the versatility of Dickinson being able to play the wing. And I think that, that uh, depending on the matchups and depending on um, how how comfortable they are using Miller at center potentially that you may see Dickinson at some points of the season within the top six on the wing either with uh, either on the Pedersen line or potentially even on the Horvat one and so if that's you know if you're the Canucks and you see that as a possibility putting him in, in that kind of advantageous um, you know position to succeed well then he could break out offensively and if he breaks out offensively then he obviously would have costed a lot more if you would have just done a one or two year deal. So I think it was important for the Canucks to buy out some UFA years, get some term and relative to the term they secured, I think it was solid value for a player who um, I think can be a solid third line center in addition to having some versatility on the wing. After the acquisition of Dickinson and the subsequent trades and acquisitions that have come from the Vancouver Canucks, there's been a lot of speculation about the depth chart, and a lot of that conversation has revolved around, hey, Dickinson allows the Canucks to unshackle Bo Horvat a little bit more. But what about his pure effectiveness as well? Who are the two wingers right now that you believe will make Dickinson's line the most effective? Well, it kind of depends on the identity that you want to carve out of the line. Like, for me personally, I'd, I'd love the idea of um, building up the Dickinson line to be a defensive shutdown one that can take on some of the tougher matchups. And so I love the idea of stacking a ton of size and defensive ability on that line and going Pearson on the left wing, Pod Colson on the right wing. And that would just be, that line would be an absolute pain in the neck to play against um, all three big forwards who are ferocious on the back check, uh, are all good on the four check, good, on the wall, good along the walls, are, are heavy um, can protect the puck really well, and you know they can play the kind of grind and, and cycle game. Not going to be a ton of pure offense out of that out, out of that line, but definitely the game plan in that, in that scenario would be, well, then you promote Hoaglander and Garland up with Horvat, and you've got the second line that um, can now escape tough matchups and can produce a ton offensively. And so um, that's that's kind of what I'd love to see. I don't know if. 
Uh, Vancouver's coaching staff ultimately will like the idea of having a couple of undersized forwards and Hoaglander and Garland on the same line. And so if they want to kind of have a more balanced mix in terms of the size and skill, then you may uh, see a scenario where someone like Hoaglander maybe bumps down to play with uh, Dickinson. And and in that way, you're maybe not using that as a defensive specialist line and you're maybe just deploying them more as a straight up you know, third line uh, deployment. And in that scenario, then Hoaglander could add, could add some playmaking punch um, with, uh, with Dickinson, who's more of a shoot first guy, not a lot of ton of offense there. So it's going to be fascinating, fascinating to see. And, and really the um, thing that I'm most looking forward to in training camp is the endless number of combinations that they, that they can experiment with um, within the top nine, just because of so uh, of how many players and forwards they have that, can play multiple positions like Hoaglander can play both wings. Pod Colson can play both wings. Uh, Garland can play both sides. And so you, when you also couple that Miller and, and Dickinson can both play wing and center, um, there are just so many options for Travis Green to try and experiment with, which I think is going to be huge, not necessarily at the start of the season because you'll, you'll have all your healthy bodies, but mid season when injuries strike and, and you have to call up guys and, and you're trying to figure out what combinations work. Having guys that can play multiple positions is going to be huge. So I'm 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 still curious to see how the Canucks uh, end up deploying uh, Dickinson. Well, and, and Harmon, I mean, Travis Green and his coaching staff must just be thrilled to have not just the versatility you're talking about, but I look at the depth and to have players that they can confidently move up from the third line into a top six role. Or if you need to, you can move guys down the lineup as well. That that hasn't always been the, ca- the case in recent years, right? Where you have players in your bottom six that you can feel confident about moving up and down the lineup. And that flexibility I think will will give Travis Green a lot of options as well right that you know you don't look at these players and say okay he can only play in a top six role or he can only play in a bottom six role you guys you have guys who can do a bunch of different things 100% and you really this is the first time in Travis Green's kind of NHL coaching stint where he's going to have three lines that can score and that is huge where um, I think in previous seasons, we've definitely talked about how much of a drag the bottom six has been in terms of the lack of offense and being able to control play. And now it's just a different dynamic. And, you know, I think back to points uh, over the last couple of years where um, you may have had someone like Brock Besser, for instance, maybe he wasn't, uh, this was, I think, a couple of years ago in the 1920 season, but there were points in the season where he maybe wasn't uh, clicking at his best. And the Canucks would try mixing things up and sending them down to the third line. And it just wouldn't work because on the third line, you had Gaudet, who was still kind of learning his way, and Roussel, who really can't produce a lot offensively. And it, it was just an awkward fit for moving a guy like that down the lineup and then also figuring out, okay, if we're moving Besser down the lineup and going with a different look, then what are we like? who are we going to promote up to play in the top six role? So exactly, you hit the nail on the head there where – now you can, you know, anyone in the top six who's maybe struggling and um, needs, a, needs a new look, you can comfortably send them down, still put them in a position to succeed, and then also promote someone from, from the third line um, who has experience playing in the top six. Like now all of a sudden um, you look at Vancouver's top nine and someone like Tanner Pearson could be on your third line. And, and how awesome is it to have him as, a, uh, him as a piece where whether it's injuries or you just want a different look, you can slide him up to play with Horvat. Um, whereas 
last year he's already in the top six by default and, and you just don't have the same level of depth. So definitely when you look at Vancouver's top nine and I think that just the forward group as a whole, it's definitely shaping up to be Vancouver's biggest strength going into next season. And Harmon, the other thing that really stands out to me about the forward group is, you know, we've talked so much about how inefficient the salary cap space was spent by the Canucks, specifically at forward, right, with Beagle and Roussel and Sutter all in the bottom six, Louis Erickson either in the bottom six or in the press box. And now that's completely changed, right? Obviously, if Erickson and Beagle and Roussel gone, Sutter on a, a significant discount from what he was making uh, before, and now Jason Dickinson signing at a very reasonable number. And all of a sudden, you look at the forward group, and there's not really any terribly inefficient contracts. Tanner Pearson may be a little too rich for some people's blood, but all of a sudden, everybody kind of slots in where they're supposed to be, right? You have a third-line center making just under $3 million. You have a fourth-line center making about a million. It, it, it's just a much more efficient structure than they've had in the past. 100%. And in a way, they kind of reallocated some of those risks to the back end where um, obviously, in that blockbuster trade, now they've got OEL on the back end, and, and we'll see how he fits. I think OEL will give them an op- give them someone who can provide a lift for the top four in the short term. Uh, although it definitely comes with, I think, long term question marks about just how how long can he really uh, thrive as a bona fide top four defenseman relative to the seven point two six million dollar cap that he's going to carry, um, and then. Uh, again, even on the right side of the defense, and, and this is where um, I, I, I really wonder long-term, and especially when you're talking about eventually trying to build a Stanley Cup contender, how they're going to go about things, because um, on the right side, right now with, with Hamannick, Myers, Pullman, I don't think that's an efficient right side. So um, 100% agree that the Ford group um, looks sparkling right now in terms of not only talent level, but um, the contract efficiency right now is just, I think, when you talk about the medium-term future of this club, sorting out the back end, where that's, I think, where you have a lot of those inefficient contracts, and that's where um, you have question marks on the right side of the defense about how well it can hold up, because otherwise, if, if the blue line can hold up its end of the bargain, I mean, you're talking about a playoff team next year for sure. Harmon Dahl, The Athletic, joining us here today. Canucks get the Dickinson deal done. We're waiting on a couple more, Harm. It gives us some... Posts, anyway, gives us one. We know where these two contracts together have to come in. Combined total, what do you project it to be? Yeah, so internally, I think the Canucks project to have 15 to 16 million, roughly, uh, on both of them. And, you know, it's it's funny because usually when you're trying to figure out how much space you have to sign guys, it's a very, very simple calculation, right? Um, but in this instance, because of Furlan and his LTIR contract, it's it's very variable and it's one of those situations where I think a lot of fans and this is one of the most common misconceptions about using LTIR is they'll look at Furlan's three and a half million dollar cap hit and for the purposes of figuring out how much space they have for Pedersen and Hughes, they'll just remove his three and a half cap hit from the picture and that's really not how it works. Um, Furlan's uh, Furlan's three and a half million dollar cap hit is always going to be on the books. LTIR is just is just a device that allows you to potentially exceed the cap um, up to a maximum of the three and a half million, and and that's the key word uh, up to a maximum, and um, that's where the club's going to have to get like this is going to be pretty complex in terms of modeling out 
um, how to manipulate the roster to really maximize how much they can exceed the cap by to get as close to that three and a half million dollar mark as they can. Um, and that's where, if you look at last season, for example, that's where you had the, um, that's why the Canucks, for instance, were papering down Hoaglander and sending him down to the AHL when they submitted their opening day roster um, was just to kind of create the best capture possible to maximize the space. And the other decision, you know, there is going to be whether, um, like last year, there, there's a there's a pretty key difference between uh, placing Furland on LTIR uh, before submitting the opening day roster and after submitting the opening day roster. And I'm not going to uh, dive too too deep into the weeds on that, but there's just a big difference in flexibility where if you put him on LTIR and use that relief before submitting uh, opening day rosters, it significantly limits your in-season flexibility of being able to call up guys if injuries strike and things like that. So there's going to be, I think, a lot of intricate modeling that goes on for mock scenarios of if injuries strike, are we going to be okay? And, and, and so there's a lot of cap work to be done there. But I think internally the Canucks think that they have between 15 to $16 million to play with on uh, Pedersen and Hughes. If you're Quinn Hughes, what is the ideal term you're looking for? I'd be looking at, if, if I'm willing to bet on myself, definitely a bridge. I look at um, Zach Wierenski's contract, for instance. He signed his three-year bridge, and Wierenski's bridge, um, similar sort of situation as a 10.2C RFA, didn't really earn a lot, but man, on his third contract, got over $9.5 million. And, and Wierenski's a player who... Um, hasn't really achieved the level of point production that Hughes has, even as a 20-year-old rookie. Uh, and so if you're Hughes, you're potentially, I think, really licking your chops at the idea of, man, Renzi signed that bridge and he signed and he got, you know, just over 9.5 on his next contract. And for Quinn Hughes, you know, just on his, if you can return to your rookie season form, you can perform at a level that's better than Zach Wierenski. And, and so then maybe you're looking at um, an eight-figure kind of cap it in the 10 million kind of range potentially. And um, who knows, in three years, you're potentially even, and I know in talking to agents around the league, I think a lot of RFA star-level ones are weighing the possibility that the cap is going to be flat for now, but it, in three years' time, it, it may be rising again as we kind of, put COVID in the rearview mirror, hopefully. And, and as we see the uh, effects of Seattle and the ESPN TV deal. And so on that front, you know, if you're Quinn Hughes and you're willing to bet on yourself, if you think that you can return to your rookie season form and be that kind of player, um, I'm going to bet on myself and, and go for a three-year bridge and look to cash in on my third, third contract. Harm, is there one deal that you expect to get done before the other because they have the same representation? Is it going to be, uh, you know, a dual announcement when they do get done? How do you see this playing out? We know, you know, obviously the next pressure point is really training camp. What what do you think in terms of the timing we're going to see on these deals? Yeah, the timing is going to be really interesting. Um, I expect both will be close to camp and um, just because they do have the same agency and they're kind of, you know, not directly, but they are in some way kind of tied uh, with how close they are as friends even. And so it'd kind of be awkward to take care of one before the other. Um, if you're asking me which one is simpler to get done, I definitely think it's Pedersen, uh, just because there are a lot more comparables out there. I think the parameters of, of a potential deal are going to be much uh, tighter where I think 
pretty universally around the league. Um, when Thomas Rance and I did our kind of agents poll, um, everyone kind of seemed to be in agreement that Patterson probably deserves just a slight premium of the Matt Barzell uh, three-year contract, where Barzell, I think, got seven times three. So maybe you're looking at uh, 7.25 or 7, 7.5 for Pedersen. And so it's probably a narrow range where you're um, maybe you're, you're probably kind of uh, looking to compromise and, and kind of have this range fighting between fighting um, less than a million on, on both sides. Whereas I think with Quinn Hughes, there was, um, you know, you ask agents and a lot of them go, honestly, we don't really know what Hughes is, Hughes is worth. And, you know, what might be the best uh, approach for both sides. And, and I think of the two, Hughes is probably more likely to, um, like if one of them does sign for, say, six years, it's probably Hughes if I, if I were a betting man. And so there's variable term there. And I think also in terms of the comparables, you've got, um, if you're doing a bridge, for instance, um, you know, you've got McAvoy, you've got Wierenski, and you've got Sergachev, but on on if you look at point production, he was out he was outscored all of them, and so um, it's tougher I think to really peg uh, Hughes's value precisely, and so for that reason I think Hughes will be a little bit more complex to get done for sure. Hey Harmon, just before we let you go, I wanted to ask you about uh, Vasily Podkolzin coming over to play his NHL rookie campaign. It feels like, you know, when we talk about the Canucks lineup, a lot of us, and I, I include myself in this, have kind of already penciled him in to be, you know, Niels Hoaglander 2.0 and come over and make an immediate impact in his rookie year. We know it doesn't always happen that way. What do you think are realistic expectations for Pod Colson in the Canucks lineup this season? Yeah, so I think the Canucks themselves are are optimistic that Pod Colson could potentially um, be Hoaglander 2.0 in terms of his impact. And I think that's definitely what, what they have their fingers crossed for. I think, um, you know, I could see that scenario unfolding. I think the difficulty with Pod Colson is just because of the lack of opportunity he had in the KHL. And it's, it's a lot tougher to project just what exactly he can, uh, he can be. I think at the very least he'll, you know, I definitely see him in a top nine role. And I think, his uh, his two way game and the defensive habits and details of his game are definitely going to be refined. Like that's an element of his game that I have no question marks about. Um, where just the habits that he's formed with how he forechecks, um, how how intelligent he is positionally, uh, and and how much he can help in terms of driving play. I think he's definitely going to be impactful in that sense and help whatever line he plays on within the top nine. Um, I'm just not sure what exactly we're, we're going to see in terms of the point totals and the offensive production because, again, he was quite up and down in the KHL. The opportunity was uh, quite inconsistent. So in terms of being able to stick in a top-nine role, I mean, I have him sharpied in, in that kind of role. Um, and I think he can he can definitely be helpful there. I'm going to be curious, and, and, and really I think the million-dollar question is just – exactly how much is he going to produce offensively and I think that's really tough to know until we see him at camp avoid wasp nests and anything else that might endanger the rest of your Monday okay <laughs> will do thanks Arm thanks 
That is Armand Dial of The Athletic joining us here today, talking about the Dickinson contract, which he sees as a pretty efficient signing. And, Jamie, this is just where we're at right now, projections. There was so much turnover yeah. in, in so many different manners with the Canucks on what this roster is expected to be. You can understand the excitement with projection right now and where things fit. And I think the point that you and Harm were talking about is an excellent one. The number of options you have. You know, there's some fans that yeah. they get upset about, oh, you got to leave these guys together longer. They got to have some chemistry. It's That's just not reality in the NHL anymore. If a line's not going one night, you're going to see some switches. If a particular guy's in a slump, you're going to see things moved around. And the different iterations of this lineup, especially with the forward group now, are so much better than they used to be. Yeah, it really is night and day when you look at it. And as I as I mentioned to Harm there, the, one of the things I really like about its construction is there's a lot of guys who you can trust in two-way roles, right? And I, I even look at a player like Niels Hoaglander, and, you know, obviously I'm sure the coaching staff would prefer to use him in more of an offensive role, but he was also riding shotgun with Bo Horvat and Tanner Pearson for most of last year, taking on a lot of those tough defensive matchups. So if you feel like to shake up the chemistry a little bit, you got to move Niels Hoaglander down to a third line and ask him to take on more defensive role, you at least have a pretty good feeling about that, right? You know, even a guy like Brock Besser took major strides as a two-way player there. There's not a lot of one-dimensional players left in that top nine forward group. You know, you might point to Jason Dickinson as one of them, although the Canucks are hoping that they can get more offense out of him. But because of that, there's so few players where you say, ah, you know, this guy, we really can't trust him in his own end or... This guy, he's not going to give us anything offensively. You don't have many of those players, which means the different permutations of your forward lines are, are almost endless, it feels like. You can put it put it together in so many different ways. Still going to depend on the big boys, but you're absolutely right with that point. And Travis Green, he surprised people in the past about where he slotted certain yep. players, especially young ones, in the roster. That could be part of the training camp story again. A number of Wasp stories continue to pour in, so we'll have to get to a couple of those. And I know you're interested already, but does it increase your interest? I'll tell you what that is next right here on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Nice job with the drop, Greg. Greg Ballack back at Mission Control. Raja Shergill producing the program today. Excellent job by him lining up what has been an entertaining show, at least from my standpoint. Some of that entertainment coming from people having a look at my giant swollen hand as a result of a wasting late on Saturday night. Hasn't gotten a lot better, I'll be honest. That's hasn't the worst. When you when something happens and you're like, oh, it'll go away. It'll go away on its yeah. own. And then it doesn't. It's like, oh, I was really banking on this sorting itself out without any, any other effort on my part. Yep. Pretty much. And it just hasn't gone that way. Scott Rentoul, and as you just heard there, Jamie Dodd in for the final segment of the show today. Jamie will be with me all week on co-pilot duty. I know it enhances it for me, and I'm about as invested in football as among fans. Jamie, I know you are a very passionate football fan as well. A lot of my sporting life is revolved around the sport, so I'm already in, but I'll tell you this. More Canadians making an impact in the NFL enhances it no question for me and it has me following different teams in some cases teams that i don't actually like the pittsburgh steelers yeah. might be one of the prime examples for me but chase claypool being there yeah i want to see him have success doesn't mean i want the steelers to win the super bowl but there are more and more and more canadians year after year and they're starting to have impact at different positions which is fun man it is it's a lot of fun and chase claypool at the skill position 
anyways, the skill position grouping has kind of set the standard now for, okay, you know, we're not just the fourth receiver on a team or the third string running back or something like that. This is a guy who's a focal point of that offense, who they rely on game in, game out to put up big stat lines. And he did that a lot last year. He was really exciting. And you're right, it does make it hey, you're more likely to flip over to the Steelers game, right? Even if there's another interesting game on. You're you're going to be paying close attention, of course, in your fantasy league, but just click it on the box score after you see a Steelers final, right? Oh, I wonder what Chase Claypool did today. It absolutely increases your interest in that team. Yeah, it certainly does. And look, you play fantasy football, I play fantasy football. You're not going to put a guy on your roster just because he's Canadian. You wouldn't waste the roster space. No. But we're talking about viable options here. You know I play in dynasty leagues as a as opposed to the just one-year redraft team. Man, I've drafted Josh Palmer on a couple of my rosters already, who's in his rookie campaign with the Chargers. I got Chuba Hubbard last week in our rookie draft with the oldest league that I've been a part of. And I'm not drafting those guys simply so I can say I've got a Canadian on my roster. Those are viable options in yep. a deep, especially in a dynasty league with a guy like Hubbard. Well, and and, and Chuba Hubbard, he'll get drafted in, in even season-long leagues because of the handcuff factor with Christian McCaffrey, right? Who we know has has sometimes had trouble staying on the field. So, I mean, Chuba Hubbard will be a late round pick, even if you don't care at all about Canadians playing in the NFL. He'll still be relevant in some sense to the, to people's fantasy seasons this year. Chase Claypool is going to be a sought-after guy. I mean, I know there's questions about what Ben Roethlisberger has left in the tank, so you're a little worried about that offense overall, but he's a very relevant player at the wide receiver position. You're right. It doesn't have to be sentimental. Oh, I guess I'll take this guy off my last pick because he's a Canadian. These are viable options in many cases. Yeah, not just streaming one week to the other. Guys that you think might no. actually make an impact, and it's we said this, I used the term before, but it feels like the final frontier in North American sports because we've seen Canadian athletes have so much success. Look, look, we just came off an Olympics where we saw ultimate success for so many of our Canadians in whatever competition they've been involved in. And the way our mindset has changed around what we expect from our Canadian Olympians in the last 15 years, Jamie, has, has been a dramatic switch. And it's starting to get that way in the National Football League, the way that Steve Nash changed things in basketball. Guys like Larry Walker and Joey Votto and Justin Morneau, uh, not to mention some of the pitchers that have come out of this country in recent change thing in baseball. We're starting to get there finally in the National Football League. Yeah, and it looks like it is going to be Chase Claypool leading the way, right? And we'll see where his career can go. You know, there's so much talent at the wide receiver position in the NFL these days. So for him to, you know, crack top 10, top five of wide receiver of the wide receiver position someday, that's a huge challenge, but that's the kind of thing which would elevate him, you know, not to the Steve, Steve Nash level, but would really elevate him relative to other Canadians in team sports around the world. And, you know, I still look at a guy like Chuba Hubbard, right? He had that fantastic campaign at Oklahoma state, decided not to go pro right after that one, you know, ends up getting picked a little bit later in the draft, maybe than he once hoped. And you look at it at first plus and you say, ah, it's Carolina. He's stuck behind Christian McCaffrey, but Scotty, we've seen over and over again, how quickly running back situations can change in the NFL, right? And I, I look at Todd Gurley in L.A., right? They gave him the big deal. He's Todd Gurley. He's been so incredibly productive. That changed in the blink of an eye. Now, Christian McCaffrey, I think, has a better chance at remaining productive longer because of what he, what he does out of the backfield as a receiver. But still, don't just assume, oh, he's stuck behind McCaffrey. He's going to have to wait a long time for his opportunity. You never know what's going to happen at the running back position in the NFL. And I think Chuba, Chuba Hubbard has the talent that if he does get his chance, he could make a big impact right away. 
Well, it's a fair point you make about the versatility of McCaffrey, but as running backs age, and look, last yep. year's the first time McCaffrey missed games. The guy had been remarkably healthy, which was a question coming in. Well, he's a smaller guy. How's this going to? Can he actually be a running back? And can he do some of the same same things at the NFL? Last year's the first year he had any type of significant injury. First time he missed time, but because of that. What do you often hear? Well, we want to keep this guy fresh. We want to cut down the touches a little bit because we want him available game in, game out. This got mentioned earlier in the show. Donovan Bennett brought it up. There's talk and, like, legitimate talk in Carolina. We might use both of these guys on the field at the same time because they're playmakers. If we get either of them in space, they are just horrendous to deal with for defenders. He's got a coach in Matt Rule. You remember the phone call after yep. the draft? Matt Rule loves this guy. Had to play against him in college his wife was calling him, telling him, "You better take Chuba Hubbard." Like he's got, and that Jamie, you know this as well. Politics and sports, like there's some talent oh. that you just can't deny, but in other cases, it takes having someone in your corner. Hubbard would appear to have that. Yeah, he does, as you said. You know, Matt Rule would have coached against him at Baylor in the Big Twelve, so he has that exposure to him. He has like a, a little extra buy-in already to the idea of Chuba Hubbard. And you know, say what you want about Sam Darnold as the quarterback, but you look at the, from a coaching perspective, right with Matt rule and Joe Brady as the offensive coordinator. And I know a lot of people are really, really high on Joe Brady as a guy who, who can drop a killer play, who can be very inventive and creative as an offensive coordinator. Maybe that does free up a possibility for Chuba Hubbard to get in in some different sets, right? Whether it's two running back sets, whether it's, you know, McCaffrey lines up in the slot and Hubbard is in the backfield. It might be a path. There, there's the, the buy-in from the coaching staff. And also I think the creativity to find ways to get him involved this season. Yeah, it's a very good point. And if you get that person in your corner right away, and we saw this with Claypool, boy, can it lead to some really big oh, yeah. things. I'm not sure Hubbard hits those heights this season, but a lot of that might depend on on injury and opportunity in Carolina via Christian McCaffrey and, and what happens with him. Josh Palmer, again, talk about situation. He's landed in a really good spot. Like, he's landed in a spot where they are going to throw the ball. I know they'd like some balance in that Chargers offense as well. But Josh Palmer goes in with a young quarterback who's going into his second year, and if they can find some element of chemistry, now you get to grow with Justin Herbert as well, and that is going to afford you opportunity. Yeah, no doubt about it. And again, you look at, okay, they got Mike Williams and Keenan Allen there kind of slotted in as the top two wide receivers. But, I mean, he's got as good a chance of anyone as being that number three guy in an offense that does want to throw the football. You know, you can still be really important to a team as the number three wide receiver. And, you know, with Mike Williams and Keenan Allen, again, Keenan Allen in particular, he's been around a long time. You, you start to wonder at a certain point, is the durability there? Do they, do they try to reduce his role in the offense slightly in order to keep him him fresh there's a path to making an impact for Palmer for sure yeah there is and you it you bringing up Keenan Allen is a really good point even Mike Williams because part of the reason Claypool was able to thrive it's his talent it's his work ethic all of those different things but it's also because he was in an offense with players who were going to give him better opportunities because they command coverage and that's what Palmer yep. goes into with the Chargers as well yeah, you got to double Keenan Allen from time to time because he is a receptions hound. He, he's always putting up numbers. And you're going to have to have somebody on Mike Williams. Well, guess what? At some point, that means someone down the line gets what could be or should be a favorable matchup, and you get to eat early because of that. Yeah, for sure. You 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 are the beneficiary of everyone paying attention to Mike Williams, to Keenan Allen, even to Austin Eckler coming out of the backfield, right? We know what he can do as a receiver. And 
there's two sides to that coin. On, on the one hand, it's, hey, we have all these other really good offensive weapons that we like, but the flip side is exactly what you're saying, right? Sometimes the defense is going to pour all of their attention onto those guys, and all of a sudden the slot receiver has a chance to eat. While we're talking about young players, none of these guys are Canadian, but it's those first-round pivots, and everybody was talking about them over the course of the week, uh, weekend. Trevor Lawrence, he was all right. He wasn't great, made a couple of nice throws. That old lion was maybe one of the talking points, and they better find a way to protect him down in Jacksonville. But Justin Fields had a nice weekend. Trey Lance, the numbers aren't overwhelming, but he threw an 80-yard touchdown pass. Zach Wilson was very efficient. Mac Jones had a pretty decent preseason debut. Who of those five flashed the most for you? Who did? Who are you most optimistic about coming out of the weekend? Well, probably it's Justin Fields because I think he had the most complete day out of any of them, right? Trey Lance, as you said, you know, the stat line doesn't tell the whole story, but a lot of the excitement was predicated on the one big play. And that's that's really important, don't get me wrong. But you also, you know, you want to see it consistently on a snap-to-snap basis. And Justin Fields had some troubles early, but then was able to show off more of what he's able to do for Chicago. I'll tell you the guy I was surprised by more than anything, I think, is Mac Jones in New England. And if if you had gone through just the five first-round quarterbacks and, okay, you know, how likely are all of them to start not just week one, but let's say before week eight, you know, Mac Jones would have been at the bottom of those rankings, I think. But all of a sudden, because of how Cam Newton looked last year, it didn't go great in his first year with the Patriots. Mac Jones impressed a lot of people in his first taste of preseason action. And I even saw, you know, Bill Belichick out today saying, hey, listen, this is a QB battle. Cam Newton is not, I'm not naming him our week one starter, not by a long shot right now. So that's the performance that really surprised me more than anything. In terms of most upside that I saw on the weekend, I'd probably give it to Justin Fields. Trey Lance is right there for sure. But the fact that you look at, okay, if Mac Jones makes this a race, I mean, we could be week three, week four, and all of a sudden have all of these guys starting for their respective teams. With Mac Jones, the numbers weren't overwhelming. Either like a co- the completion percentage was nice. He was 13 of 19, didn't throw a touchdown, but he didn't turn the ball over either. He only threw for 87 yards. So you can see what the game plan was as they try to acclimate him to that offense. But in a couple of these cases, you've got such different type of skill sets. Mac Jones doesn't play the game the same way Cam Newton does. Trey Lance doesn't play the game the way Jimmy Garoppolo does. Andy Dalton, Justin Fields. Like, I can see different ways in those three cases specifically to work the players in without even having to start them but get them some real reps relatively early in the season without having to say, well, you're our starter now. Well, and especially with Trey Lance and Justin Fields, right, because you can put them in packages where the defense still has to respect their arm but you also know they can do things, really impressive things, with their feet, with the ball in their hands as a scrambler, as a runner as well. So that, you know, even if Trey Lance doesn't start until week seven, we're still going to see him frequently on the field because that's something we know Kyle Shanahan is excited about, excited about the chance to use a quarterback like that in San Francisco. But, you know, you mentioned all the, the different types of styles between the challenger and the incumbent in a lot of these cases. It's also just fascinating because – you know, the path to playing time for Justin Fields or the path to being a starter for Justin Fields or even for Mac Jones, when you look at what Cam Newton has turned in last year in New England, it's a lot easier than Trey Lance. And again, Jimmy Garoppolo has his limitations, but he's clearly a cut above Andy Dalton of Cam Newton at this point, right? So it's interesting. Trey Lance might have the most talent and the most upside of, you know, any of these guys outside of Trevor Lawrence, but 
He might also have the most difficult route to becoming the starter just because Jimmy G is the incumbent there. Okay, so play off of that. And this can mean different things to different people depending on what type of opportunity you're seeking. Which of the five quarterbacks is in the best situation? Two of them are the unquestioned starter from day one, and that's Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. The other three, they'll have to compete for their jobs, but they're also not on bad teams like the two guys I just mentioned. So who's in the best situation in your mind? I, I, it's funny because as I said, he might have the hardest route to becoming the starter, but the flip side of that is his team's pretty good. I think it has to be Trey Lance. Cause I do still believe his talent and his upside will win out and he will become the starter at some point this year. And when that happens, you just look at the infrastructure around him, starting with Kyle Shanahan, who you can have a lot of confidence that Kyle Shanahan is going to get the most out of his pivot, right? Going to get the most out of his quarterback and whatever that quarterback skill set might be. And he's never really had a guy like Trey Lance to work with. So that's exciting right there. And then I think there's a lot of talent surrounding him on offense. So it's the kind of thing with Trey Lance where, yeah, it might be a struggle just to crack that, that lineup, to crack the starter position. But once you do, you could really have instant success. You know, I look at Lawrence in Jacksonville, Wilson in New York. Those guys could be set up to struggle. There, There is a, a dearth of talent at a lot of spots on those rosters. But Trey Lance, yeah, he's going to have to earn it. If he does, it could mean big things pretty quickly for him. We didn't mention this guy, but he is a former first-round quarterback, at least pick-wise in the NFL. Someone texted in, it's no longer Tebow time. Time for him to retire. There were a couple of yeah. ugly highlights of Tebow trying to block for the Jags on the weekend at the tight end position. Yeah, and um, as I understand it, you know, if you're the you know second, third string tight end, blocking pretty important part of your job usually, right? Usually that's what you're going in there to do at least a large percentage of the time. So I don't know. I mean, I don't want to judge a player's entire performance in the preseason or training camp based on a couple of, of viral clips, but it, it was not pretty what we saw from Tim Tebow. Nope. Nope, it wasn't. Herb Meyer, he's got a guy in his corner, but Herb Meyer is also the kind of guy who's going to make those tough decisions at the end of the day. Dude wants to win and establish a new culture. Is Tebow part of that? We will see. I promised we'd get a couple more of these in, so we will. For those who are joining the program late, I got stung by a wasp late on Saturday night. My right hand and upper part of my forearm fairly inflated right now. It hasn't changed that much despite me trying to get some Benadryl medication with it. I promise we get a couple of these in because people took the time to write them. Burnaby Ken says, when we were kids, my brother and I were swatting wasps flying from a nest on our porch. One flew on my head. My brother started smashing my head repeatedly with the swatter. And when the dust settled, apparently the wasp was crushed. But I couldn't even tell if it stung me because I was delirious and my head was still pounding from the beating I just took. That's pretty That's good. Amazing. That is a very good brother, a brother story right there. And I, I, I don't know what the relationship between the two brothers is, but you can just imagine the other one saying, man, this is my chance. This is my chance. Just free reign to go to go to town with the fly swatter on my brother's head here. Yeah, I got it on the first swap, but he doesn't know that. So I'm just going to keep yeah, he taking know that some at all. I'll get, a, I'll get a few extra ones in here. Why not? Yeah, I think I got it. I think I finally got it now. Q sends in this. Coworker was having lunch, had a wasp land on his burrito, not looking. He took a bite, got stung on the upper lip, screaming and swearing oh. aside. His face and lips swole up, looked like Homer Simpson for the rest of the day, says Q. That's a nightmare. That's a nightmare, especially, you know, I'm sure you're just, you're sitting down, you're, you're savoring that burrito. Oh man, it's finally time to eat my burrito. 
And then to have it turn on you like that, oh, that's tough. That's really painful to think about. I just hope that coworker wasn't sharing the burrito the way those Alouettes fans were sharing that hot dog of the weekend. <laughs> Indeed. Um, we had actually a text in from Calgary earlier about that, Scotty. For people who didn't see, there was a kind of viral clip from the uh, Alouettes game where three Montreal fans were just like passing a hot dog around and, and taking bites out of it with each other which is just bizarre and yep. you know somebody in calgary texted in like look i when i go to a football game with my wife we get you know a jumbo footlong hot dog to split but even as husband and wife guess what at every little condiment stand in the in the park they have those little plastic knives you can just saw it in half they're readily available guys there were so many options those three fans had to avoid this situation and they took none of them who was the greater offender? The fan who had the hot dog and offered a bite to his buddies or the buddies who actually accepted said bite? Yeah, who who followed up on it. I think the third guy is maybe the worst because <laughs> at that point, it's just like it's like a little rind of a hot dog. It's not appetizing at all. Two other guys have already taken bites out of it. Like, what are you doing? You had a chance to rescue some of your dignity, but it's a good question, Scotty, because, yeah, what is the first guy doing? And the second guy at least had the option to turn the hot dog around, right? Oh, this and is, go yeah. from, from the unblemished end. Why didn't he do that? This is the part that surprised me. If this guy was going to have a bite of his buddy's hot dog that he's offering to share. How are you not taking a bite from yeah. the uneaten end? Like, yeah. that's just like, ridiculous to me. That's the first play. Oh, yeah, I guess it's a little odd, but sure, why not flip it around? Th then you're avoiding all of this. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, man. Terrible stuff. I could not avoid Tough the end scenes. to my... Yes, I could not avoid the end to my vacation, so I am back. I'm here all week, as are you. Great stuff again to Jay today, Jamie. Going uh, Shohei Otani on us for the next time. He'll be back tomorrow, of course, though. Yeah, looking forward to it. Atta boy, that's Jamie Dodd. He and I are in all week. Greg Ballack, Roger Shergill, part of the proceedings today. Fantastic job by both of them as well. Thanks to all of our listeners who contributed to the program here today. OT. OT taking care of business. Bick and the boss, they're filling in on the morning show while Halford and Bruff deserve some R&R &R and take their time off. So OT in from 1 to 3. You can catch them next right here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.